We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us for this episode is the legendary Anson Dorrance. We recorded this as a live webinar a couple of weeks ago and outstanding response to it. He is unbelievable, top class. We talk about so many things, uh, his passion and just such an inspirational voice in the coaching community. Uh, would love to get your thoughts on it, of course, at Gary Kernin on Instagram, at Gary Kernin on Twitter. This podcast is brought to you again by Sports Lab 360, outstanding platform designed to empower youth players to increase their soccer IQ and allow coaches to help guide player development outside of training. We've got a massive offer for podcast listeners here. The first 10 people to sign up for Sports Lab 360 will get 50 percent off you're going to get it for a half price the first 10 people use the discount code soccer iq promo x all one word all capital 50 percent off sports lab 360 get on it now sportslab 360.com slash sign up brilliant nick done does an amazing job it's really really good a lot of coaches that have heard it on the podcast that have signed up have reached out and said that they're really really enjoying it so delighted to hear that please go ahead and check it out that is an unbelievable offer here is anson enjoy anson thanks so much for joining me on the modern soccer coach webinar super excited to have you on well gary i always love being interviewed by you your questions are always uh, compelling uh, you're always asking me something that's going to get me in trouble with some aspect of my life so uh yeah let's let's have at it all right brilliant the Oldest argument in the game. The, the, I, actually, this came up last week, and I got into an argument with a couple of coaches, so I thought, uh, no better man to, to bring on for an argument. What's more important, the players or the system? What's your take on it? Okay, well, uh, obviously, if you look at uh, my history, uh, uh, we have used deliberate systems to try to win at every level. Um, and to some extent, I am married to the system. And uh, the reason I'm married to the system is where the evolution of our game is. And uh, what's really interesting uh, is back in the days when uh, uh, I guess everyone felt the game should be played in, in one kind of way to play a 4-4-2. And this is back in the, you know, the uh, mid eighties, you play a 4-4-2. Uh, it's almost like uh, the way uh, we fought in the revolutionary war. Uh, the British would line up in a line and we would line up in a line and first they would shoot and then we would shoot and we would be honorable. We wouldn't try to duck and hide. Uh, and it was almost like back in the old days, everyone had to play a four, four, two. You couldn't really pick up anyone until the line of confrontation, which back in those days was halfway between uh, your opponent's 18 and the tangent of your center circle, which meant uh, it was honorable because you allowed the other coach to play the ball around in the back like he's, you know, some sort of possessional genius. And then they would probe into midfield. 
And then, of course, it was game on once the ball was, you know, probed into midfield. Then you got to tackle someone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm looking at this thing. No, uh, that's not the way we're going to play. We're going to we're going to do something different. We're not going to go with uh, the traditions of Europe. We're going to do something different. We're going to reach out, grab the game by the throat and squeeze the frigging air out of it. So we're going to press for 90 minutes. We're not going to let the other team breathe. We're not going to let them play the ball around the back. And we're also not going to have an opportunity to play the ball around the back ourselves. Why? Because we're going to, and this is originally uh, my system back in the mid eighties. We're going to mark man to man with two because all the other teams are in a four, four, two. So we never had to make any adjustments. So we knew they'd come out with a two front. Uh, we're going to match up our unique defender with this unique attacker. So uh, if we had a really fast marking back uh, and a really tall marking back, we'd have our tall marking back mark the other team's tall striker. And if their other striker was really fast, we'd have our faster marking back on that player. So we would dictate the matchup and then we would play with uh, more or less of a deep sweeper. And then we'd play with four across midfield in a diamond uh, and then three up top. And the whole idea in playing this system back in the mid 80s was it was a system I thought was best designed to beat the 4-4-2. So what we did originally is we selected a system. Then, of course, the system evolved because the game started to evolve. And then what we did with our system, because obviously in the collegiate game, uh, we could uh, substitute. So then what we started to do is we ended up uh, eventually playing a semi-flatback 1-3-4-3. Uh, which was a system we designed where we would double at every opportunity. So the moral imperative of the the left wing, if the ball was played past the left wing, the moral imperative of that left wing was to double back against the left midfielder. If the ball was played past the left midfielder, now they would double back against the left back in a semi-flat back 1-3-4-3. So basically, uh, back in those days, my philosophy was to play a system I would personally hate to play against. And so the systems I hated to play against as a player, and I still do, even at the age of 70, is I hate someone up my ass for 90 minutes. And so I wanted to play a system uh, where basically we were, you know, pressurizing them for 90 minutes. But also we wanted to play a system of doubling. And this also fell into my lap because of the traditional, I guess, philosophy of not substituting. Uh, and obviously, uh, you see this all the time right now. What's always interesting for me is in the men's game, in the EPL, and I'm a huge fan of you know the EPL, um, all the cameras all of a sudden get really interested if substitution is made. And not so much for the man coming on. The camera doesn't follow the man coming on. The cameras follow the man coming off. And they watch him come off. They watch him ignore the coach that's trying to congratulate him on the 70 minutes he played. And then, of course, one camera's looking at the player's face as he's mad as hell that he's been subbed out. And then all of a sudden, the camera continues to follow him even while the game is going on. Why? Because what the camera wants to catch is it wants to catch him kicking, you know, a bucket into the stands because he's so pissed. Then you want to watch him sit down next to, you know, one of his friends, and they sort of share a harumph together about the fact, can you believe I was subbed out? You know, well, that's my last, you know, I am never playing here again. It's off to Real Madrid or whatever. And so this is the drama. Of course, this is English media anyway. I mean, they can't wait to blow someone up. They can't wait to find a controversy. They can't wait to spark a controversy. 
They can't wait to ask that guy after the game why he kicked that bottle into that old woman's face that was sitting in the front row. And anyway, so, and why is this all, all of a sudden so dramatic? Because, of course, the soccer snobs uh, and certainly the arrogant uh, players genuinely feel like, you know, if you start me, you've got to play me 90 minutes. Uh, and, of course, I've never believed in any of that garbage. Um, and obviously I've been criticized my entire coaching career because I believe in substitution, God forbid. I mean, I'm a collegiate coach. You know, I recruit, you know, a roster of 30 players of four of them are goalkeepers, 26 of them are field players. I've recruited these 26 kids. My moral imperative, honestly, is to get every kid on the field if I can. Why? Because you know what? This is college. Um, you know, let's let's enjoy ourselves and let's, you know, strangle the other arrogant, you know, jerks who believe in trying to have this player last for 90 as I'm sending in fresh wave after fresh wave to torch, you know, and scorch these guys as, you know, as often as, as, I, as I can. So, yeah, I have a system that's designed to make it hard for the other team. My system, obviously, at a collegiate level is based on the fact that I am going to play uh, multiple players. Uh, and the demarcation line for me on substitution is when the superior player fatigued is not as good as the inferior player fresh. And of course, that's critical for me and my system because of pressing and the fact we are going to pick up the team immediately. So I think originally, Gary, uh, I would say the system dictated uh, what we were doing. Now, the uh, trouble with the semi-flatback 1-3-4-3 is you have to have uh, track stars at left and right midfield because basically your left midfielder in a semi-flatback 1-3-4-3 is your left back, left midfielder, left wing. And if this player is not, not, not just a great soccer player, but not a track star, you're, you're basically in trouble. Uh, so oftentimes we've had to switch out of that. And then sometimes for my reserve system, we might have to go to a 4-3-3 just because the reserves are going to be more vulnerable. They're not as effective at pressing as your starting unit, clearly. They're not as good you know, at developing the ball, clearly. And so then we can have a haven of four in the back once the reserves sub in. And so then we uh, learn to play multiple systems based on uh, basically our personnel. So we have sort of a hybrid to answer that question. We have a, a sort of a system of choice, and then we have hybrid systems underneath them. And the hybrid systems as well were developed based on if we are winning with 15 minutes to go. Because then maybe we play a four back with a double six, uh, you know, with a 10 and a, a, a three-man front line that can morph into basically four in the back, five in midfield, and one to make sure we're at least stretching the other team as we hold on to a 1-0 or 2-1 <clears throat> or lead. So the evolution of my systems was certainly uh, <clears throat> based on making it uncomfortable for the other team, but also embracing the substitution system. Now, uh, can I play with three substitutions? Yes. Uh, in 1991, I won a world championship uh, with a 3-4-3, where obviously I was only allowed to substitute, you know, with FIFA rules. <clears throat> and so I can certainly play that way. But that team also pressed. Now, the difference between that team <clears throat> and my collegiate teams is I didn't require the left wing to double back against the left midfielder. And so we didn't have a doubling back system with the national team, because obviously you wouldn't last 90 minutes if you constantly doubled back. So we made some <clears throat> adjustments uh, with the uh, uh, basically FIFA rules. And obviously uh, what uh, I think um, separated us in that world championship was we were the only team that played a different system. We were the only team that pressed. Uh, uh, and one of my 
probably the most glorious compliment I've ever received in my life was the insult from Jiro Bizanz, who was the German uh, national team coach who was responsible for training all the coaches in the Bundesliga. So this was a coach that was accustomed to uh, basically training the top male coaches in the Bundesliga. He was asked to coach the women's team. And when we beat them five to two in the semifinal by basically strangling them and winning the ball in their defensive third, he uh, in the press with, you know, through uh, FIFA translators claimed that I cheated. And how did I cheat? Well, I pressed, uh, which was ungentlemanly. It was sort of like during the Revolutionary War, what started to happen to basically combat you imperialists over there is we started hiding behind rocks and trees, uh, which was clearly cheating. And so obviously the reason we're a free country is because, yeah, we hid behind a tree and a rock and you guys stood in the line. So we basically shot you guys to ribbons and and we used a different system because our culture was different. Uh, by the way, my wife is screaming at me right now because she feels like I'm insulting you, Gary. So once you know, you're protected in my own home. Uh, but anyway, um, that sort of uh, uh, covers it. Uh, but let me share where we are now, because uh, um we tried to play a semi-flat back 1-3-4-3 three, three this season. And uh, we had the personnel for it. Uh, and the reason we tried to go with it is um, I have an extraordinary assistant by the name of Damon Nahas. And he's involved in the, the national systems and he's either assisting youth national team coaches or he's brought in to assist the U23 coach. And in, uh, last summer he was brought in uh, with... Uh, uh, one of my friends who's married to uh, Lindsay Tarpley, uh, one of my former players. And so he and I are close. And he brings a Damon in to assist him with the U23 team, who's playing out in uh, Portland against uh, the NWSL teams. So he's got his U23 team in there, which are basically made up of some NWSL players, but mostly college kids. And they're out there playing against the NWSL. And uh, Emily Fox, uh, uh, you know, was coming off an injury. And all of a sudden, she's starting to shape into form. And they played the 3-4-3, and apparently Fox was glorious in this system, and I knew she would be. Uh, so one of the reasons we are so aggressive in recruiting her is we knew she would be perfect for flank midfield in a semi-flat back 1-3-4-3. So she did so extraordinarily well, and so did the U23 team. When Damon came back, we talked about this, and so we told the kids coming in that we're going to try to play our classic system. The trouble was the previous year, we had extraordinary success with the 4-3-3. Um, we ended up losing in the national championship final to uh, FSU two years ago. And in that game, honestly, if you had clipped out the goal um, that uh, FSU won on and uh, you had been asked as a, a critic of the game, well, who won the game? You would have said UNC. Now, did we have, you know, 60% of the game? No, we had maybe 55%. They had 45%. You and I both know that that's not a wide enough margin of domination to basically deliver uh, the victory. And we didn't win. And, and to FSU's credit, they were exceptional. I have no issue with the fact they won. But uh, we played well. Uh, and looking back on that, I wouldn't have changed a thing. I would have rolled the dice again. If this had been a an NBA, uh, you know, final where you play them seven times, we would have won at least four out of seven and we would have been national champions. The trouble with a single game elimination progression, as you know, anyone can win on any given day, especially uh, a quality team with a quality coach like Mark Krikorian. So anyway, so we lost. So we come into this year and then, of course, we're going to play this other system. 
And then I can sense in practice that the girls just didn't like it. And it wasn't that, you know, we couldn't have played it. We could have played it, but they just didn't like it. So we went with our 4-3-3 from the previous year because basically we had the whole team coming back. And so why not play a, you know, a system that we were successful in? So we're playing this 4-3-3. And you know what? It's not really working. We're clunking along and we're not doing badly. We had a good team and we were ranked high and that sort of thing. And But I can tell when we're clunking along. And all of a sudden we're playing against Pitt who's uh, coached by a you know wonderful coach, a former national championship rival of mine from Notre Dame, who's now coaching Pitt named Randy Waldrum. He's doing a really good job with his team. And we're down 1-0 at the half against Pitt at Pitt. And so uh, Damon Nahas on a, I don't know, a napkin uh, is looking at us in the first half and says, you know, Anson, let's look at this. And he rolls out a 3-5-2. Okay, we were playing the 4-3-3 in the first half. And the trouble is my best attacking player is Alessia Russo, who's my left wing. And she wasn't getting the ball enough. And she wasn't impacting enough on the game. We had to change the system to get her the ball more often. And we have this incredible freshman that's fast as hell, that's the perfect nine, that's going to stretch defenses. She's big, fast. She's good off the dribble. And so basically, Damon is outlining this thing. And the other thing he's got, which he's, he's got to, um, Fox back to where we need her in an isolation on the flank. So he rolls out this one, three, five, two. He's got our beast high. He's got Russo right underneath. So now Russo can go wherever she wants to get the ball. Russo doesn't like to get the ball in behind. She likes to get the ball underneath. This other kid likes to get the ball high. It's a perfect marriage for a two front. And then I've got two really crafty, clever uh, attacking midfielders in Pinto and uh, Rachel Jones. And they're the two underneath the two up top. And then I've got a classic six sitting on my uh, three. And then I've got uh, basically Fox out on the right, who is extraordinary. Extraordinary. Not good. Extraordinary. This kid will be on the full team as soon as she gets over her ACL reconstruction. Uh, 1v1, she's unstoppable, fast as hell, really good off the dribble, gets back, fit as hell, et cetera. So now we have a great 1v1 isolation out in the flank. We've got a system where Russo's getting the ball. And then we've got uh, a laborer at left midfield for us named Bridget Andrzejewski, a former right wing who's now shifted to the left half because she's fast and she'll work. That system was devastating. We're down 1-0 at the half. I think we end up winning 3-1. And now all of a sudden we are at a different level. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this team can win it all this way. So we had morphed into that. So now this is getting back to your original question. We are taking a player that's isolated in a 4-3-3 a three, three and putting her central so she can get the ball. We're taking another player or isolating her out in the flank, which certainly would have worked in the 3-4-3. Three, three. But because our three front wasn't working, we had to play a different system. And so basically now um, we're sort of married to both. I want to play a system that's hard to play against, uh, a pressing system, but I also want to play a system uh, that highlights uh, the unique uh, qualities of my great players. And so uh, honestly, Gary, I can go either way. Brilliant. I want to go back to what you're saying there, that point about this person, player getting substituted, walking off with a reaction, because has come from that, like it's, it's come into our game over here. Now, not with, I don't think players are as disrespectful, but there's definitely players that are 
annoyed, frustrated, disengaged when they do come off the pitch. I watched your team last year uh, before the final when we were down there against FSU and the energy on the bench was just... And, and I couldn't... One of the players played for Rory Dames and came, and played like 30 seconds and was off again. And after the game, it was as if she played 90 minutes. She was happy, engaged. She was... Uh, how do you keep them happy? Because... It's very, very difficult to do. Well, um, first of all, uh, we don't take ourselves that seriously. Uh, we don't run uh, the sort of ship that I think most people think we run. We've got this thing called the competitive cauldron. Everyone is recorded winning and losing in practice, and everyone's ranked uh, uh, before the next practice. We have 28 different categories. Before every practice, they get to look at the bulletin board and see where they're ranked and everything. And so the assumption that everyone has with my program is it's run like a you know, a, a military dictatorship where if you're not marching a step and you're not winning, you're excoriated and cast aside. But of course, they don't know anything about my program. It's not run that way at all. I don't take myself that seriously. Surely you can see that from the way I answer my questions. You know, I'm, you know, wondering why the Irish didn't, you know, rebel and, you know, pull off and separate themselves, you know, just from speaking with you. So anyway, um, I, I'm always trying to take the piss out of everyone I'm speaking to, plus every player on my roster. They know this. Um, and we have fun. We have fun all practice. And you're right about that great kid. She's a great kid. And she helped us. She won some games for us this year. Um, but there's a piece in her game that's missing, and she understands it. Um, to get on the field for me, you have to defend. You have to defend. If you don't defend, you don't play. And if all of a sudden you're out there and 30 seconds in, you're not defending, you're off. You're off in the first minute. And everyone understands this. If you're going to play at the University of North Carolina, you have to defend. And the thing about defending, it's not a talent, it's a decision. And so I love that kid. And she knows I do. And she knows there are certain environments where she's going to play a, a more minutes because of who she is, because she's very good at getting in behind defenses. And uh, much to her uh, disappointment from our perspective, we recruited a freshman <clears throat> that was better at that than she was. She was. <clears throat> Otherwise, she could have been our nine. She's very tactical. She's very good at getting in behind. She's very good at holding the ball up. <clears throat> but when the ball turns over, she thinks her job is done, and she knows that's our criticism of her. So we're very open in our criticism of all of our kids, and they understand, you know, when they're subbed in and out. But also, uh, we uh, we fully support these kids. She wanted to go to uh, Manchester in the spring of her junior year. <clears throat> we didn't stand in her way. In fact, we called Man City and Man United to see if she could train in with them. <clears throat> and she knows we would make, you know, phone calls for her to help her anytime she wants us to. She stays engaged with us. Uh, and, you know, we treated her well because for me, uh, it's, it's a human development thing within our program. And the other thing most people don't appreciate <clears throat> is soccer is our third priority. Our first priority is character development. So we are discussing you know, what happens when a player leaves the field. We are discussing this as a team. Uh, and actually, we talk about uh, one of our great role models for this was Jessica McDonald. Jessica McDonald, who obviously was picked by Jill to join that team uh, to be a part of their world championship run, is an, an incredible human being. And the stories we tell about her, and we have stories about everything, and so this is our story about subbing a kid out. We would sub Jessica out of a game, 
and she has an incredible work rate. So she's always working for you. So we would never sub her out because she's not defending or she's not doubling back or she's not working and she's not trying hard. And the story we tell about her is when we sub her out of the game, she is high-fiving everyone. She's high-fiving all the coaches. She's high-fiving all the players. She's got this big smile on her face. We've subbed her out and she's just, and the other thing we love about her is when we sub her out, she's breathing like this. <sighs> this is a girl that set a record in Arizona for a 400 meters. So this girl is fit as can be. So she's breathing hard, not because she's not fit. She's breathing hard because she's working so hard. And then we tell the story of this other player who will be nameless in this discussion. And I sub this player out, you know, 15, 20 minutes into the first half. And she comes right up to me and she screams in my face, I can't believe it. Why have you subbed me out? I'm not even tired. And I said, exactly. When we <laughs> subbed Jessica out, she was, you know, she was exhausted from her effort in the, you know, 20 or 30 minutes we played her. And this other player, you know, exactly. So the whole point was um, we talk about all these different issues. But uh, for us, um, it's about character. We're very serious about character. The top award at our banquet is not, you know, the MVP. And we've had some extraordinary MVPs. I mean, you can go down our roster. I mean, Mia Hamm, Christine Lilly, Cindy Parlow, and currently, obviously, Crystal Dunn, you know, Tobin Heath. You can go through our roster of MVPs, and they are a huge who of the game. That's not the top award at our athletic banquet. The top award at the UNC Women's Soccer Athletic Banquet is the Kelly Muldoon Award for Character. That's the kid I speak about most at the banquet. That's the kid I praise most. And I talk about things like you just described. Like, yeah, when uh, we subbed that kid out that played for Rory, she is a great kid. And so when I'm talking about her at my athletic banquet, I am talking about exactly the way you described her. I mean, there are demonstrations of character on both sides of the substitution divide. Uh, one is the girl that does play maximum minutes and comes off the field and praises her teammates and slaps high fives like Jessica McDonald. And there's a kid that comes off quickly that still is celebrated by her entire team because of the nobility that she is sacrificing for by playing on our roster. So uh, we consider character the most critical element. Uh, it's the most critical thing when we recruit. And the second most important thing is not soccer. It's your academic growth. And I'm so proud of this kid that just finished her Harvard medical degree. And now she's at Stanford getting her MBA. And this is a kid I joke about all the time. I wish we're running the Center for Disease Control. Because after college, she did play a year of pro soccer. She played for the Houston Dash. And then she decided, you know, she wanted to get into, you know, public health and and then worked a couple of years in that field. And then all of a sudden is admitted to Harvard. And now after getting her medical degree from obviously an extraordinary university is at another extraordinary university, getting her uh, her MBA. And so uh, these are the kids that I talk about. I talk about uh, uh, kids that are committed uh, certainly with character, but also with their academics. And soccer is the final thing. I am, I'm in the business of human development, uh, Gary. And that's what I absolutely love. Yeah, I, I was fortunate to work with a couple of your players up in Chicago, and that was like, Brooke Elby would, I've never argued with a person more than Brooke Elby, but I remember she kept her telling me one day about her core values was honesty and that no one had ever, I'd never heard that kind of depth in a, in a character from a player before. 
So when I can reverse engineer it and put my college coaching hat on, it, what secret do you do and find in that in the recruiting? Is there anything that you're digging for in, in questions or you're looking at the family setup or how do you find it? Honestly, I'd love to pretend I find it, but I don't. Um, I luck into it. And let me tell you something about Brooke. Brooke is a frigging warrior. And the thing I love about Brooke is, you know, she trapped the ball further than I could kick it. So her technical platform obviously was lacking. But, oh, my gosh, she pressed her heart up against the four sides of the field. I mean, she would rather die than let anyone go by her. And, you know, through the course of her four years, I mean, she tore ACL for us. I mean, her recklessness was legendary. And our uh, 2012 national championship, we lay at the feet of Brooke Elby because basically we had a corner kick against BYU in Provo and we weren't a number one seed. We were a, a deep number two seed. In fact, we may have been, you know, number seven, you know, obviously a number three, number two seed. So we were really deep uh, in the number two seeds. And so we had to travel out to Provo uh, in the quarterfinals in order to advance the final four. And uh, we have a corner kick. So we're taking the corner. And all of a sudden, BYU clears it out. LB is up there with the corner kick. And all of a sudden, this magic player for BYU is on a full run. She beats the entire team on this counterattack. Brooke is 80 yards away at the beginning of her sprint, and she is sprinting back. And the final player this, this player beats, this excellent BYU player beats, is our goalkeeper. Beats her off the dribble. And now she's shooting it into an open goal, <clears throat> except LB is on a full sprint back. And she's now behind our goalkeeper and clears it off the line. And then we win in gold and gold. And that year we played uh, Penn State in the semis. Uh, I think we beat them 4-1. No, we played Stanford in the semis, beat them 1-0 on a golden goal. Stanford was extraordinary. They were uh, undefeated and untied. They were a number one, number one seed. We take them out in the semis. Then we beat Penn State uh, in the uh, – uh, final, uh, 4-1, to one. Brooke Elby was the key that year because the kid's heart is just absolutely huge. But she's also exceptionally bright. I'm sure you could see that from debating her. Um, but they were all into uh, all of these core values. And when I have a player conference with a player, I am brutally honest, and I think they appreciate that. Now, during the conference, they don't because sometimes these are very tearful player conferences. But uh, especially when they go off and play for different professional teams, they call back and say, you know, Anson, I thought after playing for you, I could play for anyone. And you know what? I am really struggling playing with this, you know, jerk. He says, because you know what? When you criticize me, we could feel the love through your criticism. And I think that's an extraordinary compliment because um, – yeah, my kids knew I love them in areas beyond the game. I love them because of their character. And obviously that's the Brooke Elby story because her soccer game, as you know, was not very good. And she heard this from me all the time, by the way. You know, she's heard that cliche. You know, God, Brooke, Brooke, you know, you trap a ball, you know, further than I can kick it. She's heard that from me. I mean, so she's heard that, you know, she has no technique. She's heard all these things, but she also knows that I played her because her heart was huge. But also, I just love being with her. And let me tell you something about Brooke and her family. Every single year, we got an enormous check from the Elbies. Enormous check. 
not like a couple hundred bucks. No, this is in the, you know, five figures on a regular basis from the LBs uh, because they love the way we were raising her daughter, um, their daughter, because we, you know, we basically held her accountable. Um, and they appreciated that. They knew that, you know, she had to memorize these core values and, and she, they knew that, you know, that she was twisting and turning because uh, she is a wonderfully rebellious spirit. But she also knew we cared about her. So for me, uh, this thing that obviously we don't uh, talk about very much because it's not very sexy. So it's not really something we can use in recruiting. But the, when the kids get here, they realize that this is important. Uh, and uh, we value it, and they know we value it. And if you walk off the field in a huff, holy cow, are you addressed at halftime. You are dressed in front of the whole team at halftime, and we're not hiding it from you and the team. We are talking about it, and we are not going to tolerate it ever again. And by the way, you're not going to play in the second half. We're going to play so-and-so because you didn't have the grace uh, to come out and understand that you've got a team here, and everyone has the right to play. And that conduct is just a, uh, we don't tolerate it. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the player invariably, before the second half begins, will walk up to me and apologize. Uh, and uh, they should, because uh, that's, uh, that's not who we are. We'll just take a quick break here. Coaches, this is the last call for the 50% discount on Sports Lab 360. They've partnered up with us for almost two years now we've been working alongside them so nick's work is fantastic it's a resource that can help your players away from training put in tactical thoughts video analysis first 10 people to sign up get 50 percent off sportslab360.com slash sign up use the discount code soccer iq promo x all capitals go ahead check it out enjoy on that, well, that was one of my favorite questions I was going to ask you was, let's just say I break the bank and get you the next Chelsea manager and all of a sudden transfer you to London and the, the Kepa thing happens when you're in the, that environment of, I mean, Premier League, mm-hmm. whatever, how would you have dealt with it? Actually, it wouldn't have happened. <clears throat> That's a reflection on culture. And here's what's really interesting. If you study culture or obviously if you're uh, engaged in trying to develop it, your culture uh, dictates uh, whether or not that's going to happen. And that would never happen in our culture. Although I have to be uh, uh, completely honest. We actually had a player that subbed herself in without permission. Um, So uh, her name is Meredith Prost. She knows that I talk about this all the time. She's a goalkeeper. And all of a sudden I look up. And I see Meredith subbing herself into the game. And I am incredulous. I am incredulous. And all of a sudden, you know, she's in there until obviously the next chance. We sub her out immediately. <clears throat> and then uh, we gave her <clears throat> three choices on her punishments. And I can't remember what all the choices were. We gave him three choices. <clears throat> and I can't remember what they were. But they were all laced in humor. And the third choice was she had to be the slave of the girl she subbed out of the game. So uh, I think that's the one she chose. And that's the, that's the, I I do remember that one. I remember the one she chose that she had to become the slave of the goalkeeper. She subbed out of the game. Uh, But the first two are actually a matter of public record. Uh, I've got three books out there. My second book was the vision of a champion. If you guys have that book flip through there, there's a section on the three choices Meredith had to make once she subbed herself into a game. Um, 
And in a way, at first when she was out there, I thought maybe my goalkeeper coach subbed her in or Bill Palladino, my my top assistant subbed her in. So I sort of looked, I said, you know, Dino, did, did you sub her in? And he said, no. I said, you know, Chris, did you sub Meredy? And he said, no. I said, you are kidding me. This is anarchy. So basically, you know, we went through this, this tirade of faked righteous indignation. So we were, and I, I'm a former, you know, character actor. I, I, I was in dramas in high school. So I, I know how to feign righteous indignation, which by the way, is my favorite emotion. If I see righteous indignation in a player, I just can't believe it. I said, can you do that again? But let me tape it this time because that was absolutely brilliant. I just love that emotion. So I am there righteously indignant about her subbing herself in. And of course, the whole bench is laughing. And then we sub her out immediately and we gave her three choices. So if you've got the vision of a champion, look through it and you will see the three choices we gave Meredy as punishment for subbing herself in. That is fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Um <laughs> how do you get that i mean you know you're talking and, and i i think this is a big challenge for a college coach is trying to get the you only get three months to the season you have 25 kids it can go it can go off the rails at any weekend so you have to keep a, a certain high level of discipline but then how do you then balance that with freedom of psychological safety all that other stuff enjoyment that go with it well, for me, it's interesting. Again, uh, the way I design my systems is a system I would hate to play against. The way I design my practices and my program is a program I would like to play in. So my practices are designed for me. This is what I would really enjoy. And I like competing and not just in soccer. I compete in everything. Uh, the first dynasty I was a part of was not uh, UNC women's soccer. It was the intramural dynasty in Teague dorm. <clears throat> and I didn't uh, start at UNC. I transferred in from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. So I'm there as a second semester freshman and I've just moved into Teague dorm. I'm in the basement of Teague dorm and the intramural manager uh, comes up to me and he says, you know, Anson, welcome to Teague dorm. Uh, uh, we take intramurals very seriously in the dorm. And uh, I was wondering if you would like to compete in any of these winter and spring sports for Teague. And I said, well, let me look at the sports. And so he hands me this clipboard and I'm looking at this clipboard and and uh, I looked through it for a second. I hand the clipboard back to the intramural manager in Teague. I said, well, if you want to win, put me on every single team. He thought I was joking. He asked me which team I wanted to play on, thinking I would have an expertise in one area. No, I can play everything. And I'm very competitive. I'm always, everyone underestimate, underestimates me. And I can just beat you to death in anything. You name it, I'll kick your rear end in it. Um, and I went to a Swiss boarding school for my high school education. There were 20 seniors and were 25 seniors in our graduating class. So uh, all of I think there were five of us that could walk and chew gum at the same time. So we had to play every sport. And in a prep school, <clears throat> certainly that's as small as mine. You do have to play every sport if you're athletic, because, you know, obviously uh, Swiss boarding school, half the kids that are there are there for scholarship alone. So uh, I had no issue playing every sport. I love sports. And so basically, <clears throat> we won almost everything that spring. And then um, we, I started an 11-year intramural sports dynasty at Teague Dorm. Uh, because then uh, I wanted to make sure we would win every year I was there at Teague. So we started recruiting, which meant that when uh, an athlete in Teague knew the top athlete from his high school was coming to UNC, we insisted that we would recruit them and move that athlete into Teague dorm. 
And then all of a sudden, because we were just destroying everyone in every sport, we actually practiced, which was illegal in intramurals, apparently, but not according to me, because I'd bring my group out there and I, I would train my badminton partners, partner. And I'd say, listen, I know you absolutely suck at this, but just stand over there, get out of my way. <clears throat> just don't interfere with anything I'm doing. Now, obviously, occasionally you have to serve. Just serve and get off the frigging court and I'll take care of business for you. Uh, that was the same thing I would tell my tennis partner. You know, just stand over here and guard the lane. So I'd have him over there protecting two yards of space, and I would, you know, basically run the rest of the court. I've never wrestled in my life, but no one my weight can beat me. So I used to beat the absolute hell out of all these guys that, you know, were high school wrestlers. And confidence has never been a personal problem for me. So anyway, for me, you know, we were practicing, we were recruiting. <clears throat> then they tried to break up the Teague dynasty by putting all, by basically cutting the dorm in half. So here they are, they're taking away half of our players. It was horrible. So we had all the athletes move onto the same two floors and we continued. And anyway, so, uh, um, and this is interesting. I was listening to Rachel Maddow the other night um, on TV and she said something I thought was incredibly profound. It was extraordinary self-awareness because she was bringing on this expert and obviously it was probably an expert on, you know, pandemics or something. And uh, the expert uh, asked her a question. She, and the expert said, well, you know, I'm an expert in this. Rachel, what are you an expert in? And I loved her answer. She said, I am an expert <clears throat> in reading comprehension. And I was thinking, <clears throat> that's the reason I'd listen to Rachel Maddow. She is so good <clears throat> at explaining things to me that she has read. Um, and uh, then I started thinking about myself and, <clears throat> you know, there, all the information about our game is out there, Gary. You know it. It's on the Internet. We're all, we're all running great practices because every practice is out there. If we want to know what Jose is doing, we can find it on the Internet. If we want to see what Pep's up to, we can find it. Uh, there are all these great uh, people like you that are sharing information and these sorts of environments for everyone. And so there's no real secrets out there. And I was trying to think of, you know, um, who I am in a way. Gary, I'm an expert in competition. I'm not a soccer expert, more expert than you or anyone else. I'm not. Um, I am an expert in competition. I know how to compete. I know how to train athletes to compete. I know how to hold, I know how to hold them accountable. I know how to substitute when someone is starting to lose their competitive edge. Um, I know how to develop someone to duel which is the fundamental block of competition. Uh, I, and this gets to one of your other questions, by the way. <clears throat> I believe in 1v1 as the most fundamental training platform, and I always have and I always will, even though obviously possession has sort of come into our game and is now almost like the holy grail of where the game should be. And yet what's been really cool about this pandemic and no live sports is they're putting up all these games that I'm watching again. I'm watching, you know, the World Cup final, 2018 World Cup final. I'm watching, you know, these all of these extraordinary games in that World Cup. And I'm watching them right now with a better eye. Because when I watched it the first time in 2018, I'm watching as a fan. So I'm really intrigued who's going to win. And I'm interested in that. I'm watching it as a fan. And now I'm not watching as a fan. I'm watching it as a student of the game. And all of a sudden, what does it come down to? It comes down to Mbappe. Why? He can beat people off the dribble. It comes down to Hazard. Why? He can beat people off the uh, dribble. De Bruyne, why? He can beat people off the dribble. And you can go through all of these great players. Uh, and this capacity to duel 
is the margin of victory in so many of the games that I'm now studying, no longer watching them as a fan. So for me, <clears throat> that's my fundamental training philosophy. So here's what my kids know. They know that every single week of practice, we are having 1v1 competitions. I want my players to have the ability to beat people off the dribble, but also stop people off the dribble. Uh, so for me, that fundamental duel is still the most critical aspect of the elite player and taking that player to the promised land. And I still think that's the quality that separates the United States. Because I was watching Italy in this uh, most recent Women's World Cup, and oh my gosh, were they extraordinary. They were extraordinary back to pressure. They were extraordinary in possession. <clears throat> and even the Spaniards, extraordinary in possession. And all these other teams, the, the, obviously the Germans, I mean, and, and the Dutch, I mean, they're all really good at all these different things. What's the unique American quality that we still have? And it goes back to 1991. Um, it's two qualities. We compete like there's no tomorrow. That separates us. And we're still a little bit better 1v1 than everyone else. And that's what's still delivering us to the world championship circle. And it separates us. And so these are the elements that for me uh, are absolutely critical. Yeah. On that then, when you, when you look at uh, like, uh, Tobin Heath, Crystal Dunn, exceptional, both sides of the ball, Crystal, uh, exceptional dribbling, exceptional stoppers. Have we stopped developing those because we've become so obsessed with possession football? I am afraid we are, because here's what uh, uh, is hard for a youth coach, especially with the uh, parameters they were given when the DA became a part of the American personality on the girl side. You had to check all these boxes. You had to play through the lines. You had to do this. You had to do that. God forbid that you could press, because, of course, if you're not substituting, you've thrown pressing out the window, which is ridiculous. I mean, Gosh, I was so angry during that period, you know, with what was happening. And and fortunately for me, I was interviewed on a regular basis. So I, I got to share my ire, you know, with uh, our leadership constantly. But, yeah, I mean, um, I want us to have freedom uh, across the United States. We don't have to be Iceland. We don't have to sort out one way to play because we've only got, you know, 60 players uh, to compete at a world level with. No, we've got thousands. So let's not tell all of our coaches across the country how to do everything. Do we share best practices with them? Yeah, absolutely. We share best practices, but let's not like force them to do all these different things. Let's allow us to be like a stock portfolio. Let's allow, you know, these coaches in New England that have to deal with the mud to play this way. Let's have the coaches in Southern California that deal with sunshine year round and you know, an incredible player population. Let's have them play this way if they want to. Let's have the, the people in the South that, you know, are very aggressive uh, um, play that way. The ones in the Midwest uh, play this way. Let's let them all play their own way. I mean, that's the way to do it. And then all of a sudden, if one way is working better than another to develop this kind of player, we want that kind of player on our roster. So let's not become cookie cutter. Let's allow all these coaches to do what they want to do. And so, yeah, there are enough 1v1 advocates out there in this country, and we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine because what they've done is they've read all my books, and they believe in it, and they're training them in it. So we're going to have enough 1v1 artists. And does possession have no place in all this? Of course not. Of course it's absolutely critical. And then let's have those coaches coaching those players that will be a part of that same blend when uh, Jill Ellis or uh, Vladko are picking the national roster. 
Um, so yes, we're going to be able to pick and choose because we haven't really forced everyone to play a certain way. I can see why certain countries like Holland and Iceland and all these other smaller countries have to play a certain way and have to have players that are one dimensional playing one position so that if your first line left back gets hurt, you've got another one in the pipeline because that player has played that position his entire life. I can see that because your player population isn't like ours, but that's not my philosophy. I want my kids to be able to play in every line. And why can they? Why can you take a Crystal Dunn, who in my opinion is best at the 10 or a false nine? Why is why can you put her at left back? Because in my system, she had to defend. Um, and why can you take a Tobin Heath, who's more of a central midfield player, and throw her up there at right wing? Uh, because she's been trained to basically beat people off the dribble, but also defend people off the dribble. And so uh, <clears throat> we believe in versatility, and I preach this all the time. If you end up on a team and the best player is the nine and you're not able to move, you're on the bench. You have to be able to move. So when you join a team in the NWSL or the full national team, and we talk about the full national team all the time, and we target players in the full national team. It's a part of my player conference with an elite player. We talk about, all right, who's the weakest player starting for the United States right now? Well, it's so-and-so. I agree. What are we going to do to go after her? Where are you better than she is? We talk about that. Where is she better than you are? We got to correct that. And then we go after the hole on the national team. We go after the number 11 player on the national team. And it doesn't matter if it's the left back or the right wing or the center half. If you're an elite player, you should be able to play all three spots. Because I'll tell you, Tobin can. Because here's what's interesting about Tobin while she was growing up with a national team. If they wanted to sub a player out in the back, and wanted to sub a player into midfield, what would they do? They'd throw Tobin back there into the back. Was she comfortable back there? Yes, she was. Yes, she was. Crystal Dunn, same thing. And so, yeah, all of my philosophies are, yeah, versatility, uh, the dueler, uh, being able to play 1v1, uh, pressing, uh, being fit as can be, competing like hell, all these different elements. <clears throat> and there are other coaches out there that are better at other things than I am. <clears throat> so I think the United States is going to be fine. And we should always share best practices, but let's not make ourselves cookie cutter. Let's look at ourselves as a stock portfolio because we're big enough. Our populations are big enough. And then, yeah, let's conquer the world and both genders uh, by setting everyone free. Brilliant. Last couple for you and moving that there similarly along to coach education. Like, I mean, you've experienced the game and, and being around and influenced and impacted so many coaches. Do you think coaches are starting to become cookie cutter in their personalities and their the way they're working? No, I think most of us <clears throat> have things we're good at. Um, and I think what we have to do, uh, and I, I am the benefit of this. Um, I brought in a, a brilliant assistant. Uh, this uh, Damon Nehas guy is just extraordinary. And he is so good <clears throat> in certain areas where I'm not. Uh, we call it a fusion, the fusion of my expertise, which is competition and his, which is basically everything else is an incredible fusion. And right now I'm, I'm getting older. <clears throat> so he's running most of the parts of most sessions and I have no issue with it because his ideas are absolutely brilliant. And we just make sure that there's a drollop of, you know, competitive cauldron in all the stuff he's doing. And not that he's not competitive. He's very competitive. Um, but uh, his ideas are also absolutely outstanding. And uh, what I love about the way our office is set up, if you came to my office uh, uh, and they built me this beautiful stadium, Gary, um, 
Damon and I face each other. <clears throat> he is in a glass office, you know, 10 yards away from me. His desk is facing mine. I'm facing his. <clears throat> and we have this door between us that's open the whole time. And all we do the whole day is talk to each other. And what he and I are very excited by on a daily basis is player development. And we talk about our kids all the time. We talk about ideas to help them get to their potential all the time. And for me, there's this extraordinary dialogue. Because <clears throat> when this guy graduated from NC State, he started his own player development academy. So every single day, he's been waking up, working with, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 through 18 girls and boys in his player development academy. He has developed an extraordinary expertise in trapping, passing, shooting, dribbling, and heading, but also all the fundamental tactical aspects, which is why U.S. soccer hired him uh, to coach their U15 team. And then obviously, even when Sermani was uh, the national coach, uh, he brought uh, uh, Sermani brought uh, Damon up to help him with a full national team. <clears throat> so he's just got an incredible expertise. And so <clears throat> I'm also certainly learning from him. So I think the way we've got to do it as coaches and I learned this a long time ago when I was doing a leadership study with Gallup. Uh, Gallup tells us that <clears throat> none of us are going to be experts in everything in our profession. So what we have to do, we have to surround ourselves with people that are strong where we're weak. And uh, Damon is the perfect marriage of that. And back in the old days, Bill Palladino was for me as well, because basically I'm a shark with blood in the water and he's this warm teddy bear. And honestly, you know, if it was just me running the program without Dino, you know, maybe half the girls would have, you know, jumped off a bridge. Uh, but, you know, because Dino was so loving and caring um, and obviously filled with humor, uh, that was a great balance. And now with Damon coming in, <clears throat> he's also really good in so many areas. And then we've also brought in Heather O'Reilly. And here's what's interesting for us. Heather can talk to these kids whenever we let her uh, speak at halftime or during practice. I am listening to what she's saying, and she goes right to the heart of the issue of the player because she just jumped off the field. She was a part of that team that just won the NWSL, obviously because of a tragic injury to Merritt Mathias. All of a sudden, Heather, at the end of that season, was starting for the courage at right back. Um, and obviously, I, I really feel for Merritt. But what an opportunity for Heather in her last year to start for a championship team. So when she speaks to a player, she is bringing in this intimate personal knowledge of this issue because she was there six months ago. I mean, so her uh, coaching voice is extraordinary for us. And so I think what's critical for all of us in the coaching profession is to embrace a couple things. First of all, never develop an arrogance to feel you know everything about the game and never be married to one thing in particular. <clears throat> Um, doesn't mean you can't have some ideas, certainly, but never be married because basically the evolution of our game <clears throat> is the evolution of someone having a different idea that's changing the game. And that's why our game is continuing to improve. So even though, you know, the great players of the past are probably as good as the great players that we have currently, the modern teams will go back and beat the older teams. Why? Because we are more sophisticated. Uh, we play with a better compaction. We play with a, a better possessional idea. We play through the lines better. We do so many things better. Um, but I am asked this all the time. I mean, would Michelle Aker still play today? Are you frigging kidding me? Of course she would. Would Mia Hamm still be a, are you? Yes. You know, of course, of course. Cindy Parlow, you know, Christine. Yes, yes, yes. 
But, you know, the modern team would probably beat the older teams. Why? Because the game has evolved. And why has it evolved? Because some guy out there or woman out there has come up with a different idea. And now that idea is now a part of the lexicon. It's a part of uh, best practices. It's a part of where our game is currently. And so let's never develop an arrogance to feel that our myopic view of the world is the view. I am an expert in reading comprehension. Let me tell you about that statement. That allows her to explain everything to me because everything is written down. What an extraordinary quality to have to be an expert in reading comp uh, com comprehension. I am an expert in competition. As long as these games score is kept, I'm going to be an expert. So, uh, yeah, let's not let's not develop any arrogance. Let's bring in people that are really good in areas where we're not. Uh, and then let's grow together and let's grow our game together. Uh, let's listen to each other. Let's try an idea. Let's not condemn something just because, you know, with beer coasters and a bar, we can beat it. Because what was interesting to me is how easy it was always to beat the semi-flatback one, three, four, three. Yeah. Well, that's why one of my favorite statements was uh, Mike Tyson's statement. Everyone has a plan until the first punch. Yeah. You can certainly beat the semi-flatback one, three, four, three on paper, <clears throat> but have you ever played against my Velociraptors playing the semi-flatback one, three, four, three? It's a different kettle of fish. Brilliant. What a way to finish it. Anson, I can't thank you enough. This Gary, you're so much fun to talk to. And what, what I really appreciate about you is even though my wife is screaming at me from down below, you allow me to basically be myself. Thank you for not, you know, editing me or you know censoring me i i really appreciate that because we are all different and we are all going to learn from each other and let's do that let's all learn from each other because i think in this country we've got that capacity we've got such a blend of so many different cultures and perspectives i will never dismiss anyone else's culture or perspective because i see the strength in it we play against coaches with all sorts of different ideas and i love it i love being in the acc mark Rikorian is going to have a game plan to beat us and I want to see what his game plan is because he's going to tell me where my weakness is. So is uh, basically uh, Robbie Church at Duke. He's going to have a game plan to beat us. Uh, all these coaches in the ACC, these are wonderful coaches. I mean, back in the old days, uh, the coaches that are now in the conference that were at other schools, like Notre Dame with Randy Waldron, he's got an idea on how to beat us. Because back in the day, you know what? When he was coaching at Notre Dame, he did. So all these coaches are just absolutely fantastic um, at Virginia. I mean, they've got their own way of playing. It's an incredible way to play. I learn every time I play against uh, them as well. And, and so, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, my wife is trying to set you free. He's saying, she's saying, he's screaming at me. Is Gary trying to get off? And yes, honey, he is. He's trying to get off. Uh, but yeah, we can all learn from each other. And I do, I learn from uh, my colleagues, uh, uh, I learned from the teams I play against because obviously we try to play a great schedule. And so uh, let's all remain humble. And yeah, let's, let's, let's get better by learning from each other. First class, first class. Anson, look forward to seeing you back on the pitch soon. And uh, <laughs> look forward to talking again, hopefully get you on again soon. Well, I would love it. I mean, your stuff is great. Oh, I, actually, there is one more thing I wanted to share. And I had pre-planned this. So, Melissa, forgive me. <clears throat> um when I was a college kid, I was a four deckman on a 23 and a half footer in the ensign class. Uh, and I competed for a national champion in sailing. 
I was the worst sailor on the boat. So that, you know, if it was a choice between throwing the porto potty over the deck or me, I would have been thrown over first. So I don't want to pretend for a second I knew anything about sailing, but I was wiry and strong and fearless. So a four-deckman has to go up there in the foredeck and jibe the spinnaker. So in heavy seas, they wanted someone that was light and wiry, but also didn't mind, you know, dying. So I was really good at that. So I was picked as the four-deckman. I sailed for a guy named Roy Galloway. His co-captains were his sons. While I was sailing for him, I learned a lot. The first thing I learned is if I end up sailing, never sail with my sons because all they did the entire race was criticize his decisions. So that was the first thing I learned. I am never going to sail with my sons. And here's what's interesting about a sailboat race. Oh, the way a sailboat race works is if you are behind another boat, you are not going to pass the boat with boat speed. You're going to have to tack. So the great sailors are the ones that can organize their tack, their angle of attacking the buoy, the the buoy they're trying to get around, with a certain number of angles to get there, which is the best way to beat the boat in front of you, rather than by thinking your boat speed was going to go by the boat in front of you. That's a perfect analogy for us in football. What I haven't liked about the way uh, the Dutch influences have tried to get us to conquer the world, they have taken the stuff that they are best at and they're trying to get us to be better at that than they are. There is no way. We're not gonna outcoach the Dutch coaches or the Spanish coaches or the Italian coaches or the English coaches in their cultural football. We have to tack. And so the information that we've been given by a lot of these outside sources is to take their culture and beat them at their own culture. And I want everyone to believe this is utterly impossible. And I learned this in sailboat racing. If we're behind a boat in front of us, it's not going to be, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to get these winches down faster. We're going to put up the spinnaker faster. We're going to do all these things faster. In other words, technically, we're going to get better boat speed than these other captains that have been sailing as long as we have. And that's the way we're going to beat them with boat speed. And all these guys are, you know, millionaires. They've all bought expensive boats as if we're going to beat them with boat speed. No, we're going to have to beat them by tacking. So what I want us to understand in our own culture is we have our own culture. So let's figure out within the parameters of our culture, how we're going to beat the world. Because right now, we're not going to beat them by adopting their cultural norms to beat them at their game. That's their game. Let's find what's within our cultural norms. And obviously, what I believe uh, that's within the American personality, let's go back to the Old West. I think we're gunslingers. I think we're duelers. I think we're cowboys. And I think we like to go after people basically by outdrawing them in the one-on-one duel. I think that's American. So I think what we have to find is what matches us. We're competitive. So yeah, let's press. So let's find all the unique aspects in the American personality and bring that to bear because that's what I've been doing my whole life and I haven't left it. And even though, yes, we played heck in the final this year, we shifted from a 1-3-5-2 to a 1-4-3-1-2. Why? Because Stanford was unbelievable. That's the best Stanford team I've ever seen in my life. And we managed to tie them 0-0. Now, were they better than we were? Yeah, they were miles better. 
But I think what we have to do is to find something within our own culture and our own personality. So let's tack. Let's do something different. Let's not assume that we can follow a Dutch platform and then beat the Dutch. Mm. So there we go. My wife is now trying to set you free, Gary. So, <laughs> so there you go. Uh, love it. Love it. Anson, thank you so much. We'll uh, hopefully talk again soon. I hope so, Gary. Thank you, Bye. sir. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com. 